Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. Why are we in Exodus? Because it is the holiday of Sukkot. So when we have Yontif, we have Sukkot 1 and in the rest of the Jewish world, Sukkot 1 and 2, right? The first day of Sukkot is Yontif. The second day of Sukkot is Yom Tov. And we read from the book of Leviticus. We read on Yom Tov of Sukkot about the offerings that were made on Sukkot at the, at the right? We're told the tabernacle, but of course later in the temple, the the each holiday had its own special offerings. So on Yom Tov of Sukkot, we read Leviticus. We read about those offerings. On Chol HaMoed, what is Chol HaMoed? In between days. So the days of a festival that are not Yontif. <laughs> so the days of a festival that are not the holiday, or we don't light candles, we don't make you douche, you can go to work, you can drive, like all that stuff, that's Chol HaMoed. So on Chol HaMoed Sukkot, we read Exodus. This is going to be on the test. Absolutely. Absolutely. Study this. Study, study, study. Um, so because it gets very confusing. Everyone's like, wait, what? We're in Deuteronomy. What? Right? So whenever there's a holiday, we interrupt the lectionary and we read the assigned reading that the rabbis assigned to the holiday. Always. Always. Passover, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, whenever we have a holiday like that, it interrupts the lectionary and we have a special Torah reading for that holiday. Shavuot as well. Every holiday. So what, so Sukkot, we have Leviticus because it was going to tell us all the special offerings. Every holiday has its agricultural component. Sukkot is the fall harvest. Sukkot is the harvest, the last harvest before winter. So this was the harvest that would have fed everybody and gotten them through winter. So this harvest was a very big deal because if this was a good harvest, your family didn't starve, right? This was, this was in some ways the most important um, harvest because there isn't another chance, you know, to grow other stuff if this one doesn't go well. So Sukkot, an incredibly important um, harvest festival. But for every harvest festival that we have, the rabbis place on that festival a historical meaning as well. Yes? So Passover, it's the, it's the, um, it's the harvest, the wheat harvest in Israel. And what was the layer of history that the rabbis lay on Passover? Exodus. The Exodus. Shavuot is the barley harvest in Israel in the summer. Um, and so for Shavuot, what, what historical thing do the rabbis put on that harvest festival? Ten Commandments. Giving of the Torah. So the giving of the Torah. Revelation happens, right? So, so they, they lay a historical piece on, on every agricultural festival that's particularly Israelite. Agricultural festivals are not particularly Israelite, right? It was the region that would have been harvesting at that time. But they lay a very particular, bless you, Israelite um, experience, unique experience on top of each harvest festival. Sukkot, what is the historical layer that the rabbis put on Sukkot? 
Well, the, the Jews were in exile for 40 years in the desert, and I heard that it's like kind of a symbol for the Sukkot temporary house. Home. And so it's like a temporary period where they didn't have a home, a permanent home, but not temporary. Beautiful. Beautiful. The wandering in the desert is the historical layer that the rabbis lay on top of the harvest festival of Sukkot. So it's not just the harvest, not just what we're going to bring in, um, but it's also remembering wandering in the desert for 40 years. And that's why we build shelter. It shelters us from the... So it, the reason we build this shelter, there's probably several. Um, one is that it would have been what they used to get out of the sun when they were harvesting. Right, so you needed a place to kind of tuck out of the sun, uh, and so it would have been a structure that went up around harvest time. And it's also a symbol. Um, so, it, so probably it originates as what you identify with as the oh, it's time to be in the fields because those little huts are going up, right? That we're going to be in to get shade. It, it later, right? The rabbis reconstruct the tradition, reconstructs that, and has it be symbolic of this idea of temporary dwelling, that there wasn't a permanent dwelling for all of the time in the wilderness, all the time in the desert, that we wandered, and the only protection, right, right for a sukkah to be kosher, it has to blow over in a strong wind, right? It's not kosher if it doesn't blow over in a strong wind. So so it really is mamash temporary, right? So it so it evokes this sense of the time when we wandered in the desert, the time where we didn't have permanent homes, the time when all of our safety came from a sense of God's protection, God's immediacy, God's immediate presence with us. And, and so it uh, evokes that time when the people would have felt like their security was really, um, in terms of what was going to happen to them was in the hands of God. Wouldn't Sukkot also be one of the festivals where people had to all come? Once there was a, a, a nation, wasn't it one of the festivals where everybody had to come to Jerusalem? Absolutely. In so it's one of the case, pilgrimage festivals. In which case they didn't have all the hotels. Uh, so you have all these people, they have to be somewhere, and they could probably Right, which which would have happened at every every harvest festival, every one of the pilgrimage festivals, people would have come to Jerusalem, and they would have lived outside because there wasn't enough hotel space for everybody, um, which is why it always happens on what kind of a moon? A full moon, always. Festivals are always on a full moon. You need lights if you're gonna have that many people showing up in your town, uh, and they're living outside. They they have to be able to see. Right? And you all know the difference. If you're attached to any one place, you know the difference when it's a full moon and when it's not, even if you're not outside. Right? You, you, can kind of te- you really can tell the difference uh, between a full moon and, and no moon. It also seems to be a sign that everything is really temporary. Nothing is permanent. And we have to accept that in the ebb and flow of life. The sukkah? The sukkah is a sign that it, it, it can bowl over. and Correct. Absolutely. Nothing stays the same. In addition to providing shade, it sometimes is used for overnight when they uh, have to go too far to get travelers. It's the motel. Right. The story of Boaz, <laughs> In the desert. Uh, nice. Uh, nice, Ruben. Yes. So the story of well, the story of Boaz um, involves 
Sukkot in terms of they, they would have been in the fields. She actually seduces him at the threshing house. But it was, but it was an overnight, uh, presumably. Yes, she goes down in the night to the threshing house and uncovers his legs. So to get threshed, exactly right. Um, and uh, But we're told that she's to be given shelter, right, from... Uh, when she's harvesting behind all of the other men. She's not to be harassed, right? She's supposed to be given protection. Uh, and um, what was I going to say about that? So so the overnighting is also about the labor force, right? You're bringing in a huge amount of labor that is not necessarily local, right? You've got to get that harvest in before it rots. So, so it, you bring in a lot of labor, and so then... There's temporary dwelling we see these in the places fields for them. Today. Sure, sure. sure. It's a little off topic, but I recall that you linked, you know, Absolutely, absolutely. So usually we think of the high holy days, and when we think of you know how things line up, we think about Rosh Hashanah as the beginning of the year, and then we think of Yom Kippur as the big, big, big day, right? And then over here is Sukkot. And generally, we focus, certainly here, we focus on these two as the big ones, the beginning of the year and 10 days later, the Day of Atonement. In Torah, Rosh Hashanah, what do we know about Rosh Hashanah from Torah? What are we told about Rosh Hashanah in the Torah? Blow Shafar. Mm-hmm. It's Yom Truah. That's all. That's it. Blow Truah. That take up the Shofar and blow a Truah. That's it for that day. The first day of the month. First day of Tishrei. Tenth day of Tishrei, we have a whole lot about in the Torah. Right? We have a whole lot about the rituals that both the people and the priests um, were supposed to go through. The whole Avodah service right, is about the high priest and everything he would have done, washing and purifying and putting on white and all that stuff and bringing sin offerings for his home and for his family and blah, 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 forgiving the people. You have to atone. The people have uh, all the huge, huge pomp and circumstance ritual of Yom Kippur. So this is really... Even in, I mean, in Torah, this is the focus. Yom Kippur is absolutely the focal point. But, but it's a little weird to have the new year. We're calling it the new year. Torah doesn't. Torah calls it Yom Truah. Why does Torah call it not call it New Year? New Year's the first of Nisan. New Year's the first of Nisan. If you remember reading in your Machzor, in the seventh month, on the first day of the month. On the seventh, in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, this is the seventh month, according to Torah. So it can't be Rosh Hashanah. <laughs> it's Yom Truah, that day of blowing that horn thing, to let us know that Yom Kippur is coming. We're starting the month that Yom Kippur is happening in, because Yom Kippur is the entire focus. So it's a marker. It's so a this marker. is a marker, exactly. Yom Truah is a save the date card. Exactly right. Heads up, people. Heads up. Yom Kippur's on the way. So, 
Uh, okay, hang with me. So Yom Kippur is the focus. So what? It makes very little sense, right, to have the big hoo 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 happen here, and ten days later is the even bigger, and the, and then the, like <laughs> Sukkot, <laughs> right? It doesn't make a lot of sense. The Jews are tired; they don't want to put on another outfit and drive to shul. So why would you do that? Many scholars believe, and, and I buy it completely, is that this was Yom Truah. This was a save the date card. Blow your horn so that you pay attention and start counting, right, and watching the moon because this day's coming. This day was to prepare everybody for Sukkot. It's not why does Yom Kippur come 10 days after this. It's that Yom Kippur comes a few days or, you know, like a week before Sukkot. It was in order so that when you had the big fall harvest, you had the big party before the winter, family's not going to starve, yay! Um, and we're told in Torah that the the priests took their old linen undergarments um, that were in bad shape, and they made them into torches, and like there was this huge party that even went into the women's quarter. It was so big, it even went to the women's quarter. Um, right. So, so really, this is the link up. That Yom Kippur was in order to clean everything up. If I have business with Sarah, if we've had something bad happen between us, it's going to be really hard for us to dance together at Sukkot. You've got to clear the thing. You have to clear, you have to, you have to clear everything out. You reset, you fix your relationships, you atone, you fix it with God. Everybody's been purified. The people, the sancta, the space, the priests, everything is completely new, pure, crystal, clear, white. So that when we get to the party, everyone feels completely ready to engage. But we don't have a burn your old underwear celebration. We do not anymore, unfortunately, light our underwear on fire on Sukkot. Um, In the 70s, there was a little while there where that was kind of a thing. So um, so anyway, that, that, that is the connection of Yom Kippur to Sukkot. And because we live in the West, um, we, we've lost, I think, a connection to the a, agrarian harvest nature of the three pilgrimage festivals. That's one answer to why Sukkot is not such a big deal anymore. But how does Rosh Hashanah become a big deal? Anybody remember? Why does it move from being Yom Torah to being Rosh Hashanah? How, how did that happen? If it's the seventh month, how is it Rosh Hashanah? So... That is the old king thing. Absolutely. Where did that come from? The crowning of the king thing? Correct. So there was this little thing called the Babylonian exile. Babylonia. Temple is destroyed. The Jews are... What do you call it? Exiled. Thank you. To Babylonia. In Babylonia, the new year begins in the fall. fall. The new year begins in the fall, and at the new year, the religious rituals are all centered on what? The king. The The religious rituals are all about crowning the king again. 
at the beginning of the year. You crown the king. You have this whole huge ceremony about crowning the king, swearing loyalty again to the king. This was their rituals at the new year. The Jews are hanging out in Babylonia, and we have a shift of the new year to the fall, to be the fall calendar. And so that wins. There's always been a. There's always been two new years, fall and spring. But after the Babylonian exile, fall wins as the new year and we get all of this ritual of crowning the king who is the king for us God. of course so so I have a question because you know I'm Hala. so on Rosh Hashanah which has to be round there are two traditional ways that you make it one is in kind of a little swirl pattern and the other is the four braids to um, which comes out like the king's crown. I mean, that is really a traditional way to do it, is to be the king's crown for Rosh Hashanah. So now, I get it. <laughs> Voila. I so, and so Avinu Malkenu doesn't come out of nowhere. Avinu Malkenu comes out of, all of that king imagery comes out of Babylonia, and it comes out of the Jews reconstructing Right. right, the traditions that they were exposed to and making them okay. Israelite uh, traditions at the New Year. So when I went to that culture to get my followers, oh, there was a hand on it. Is that something that has to be? They do like a, like a hand, like five fingers. Uh, made out of dough? Smaller hollows with hands on them. I haven't seen them too. I have no idea. I have no idea. I have no idea. I have no idea. Never heard of such a thing. Now you have to go back and out. Yes, became Rosh Hashanah when it became the the head of the year, when it became the new year. Yeah, absolutely. I have a question about the tie to Sukkot, which is Is there any sense that one of the roles of Yom Kippur then in the time of Sukkot is transactional with God to get, you know, either to ask for a good harvest or to recognize that you got one? I think 100%. It's about writing the relationship as you're going into the last possibility of being fed before winter. You want to, you want to write that ship fast. Right? Um, yes, 100%. Okay. We good? Yeah. We all good? All right. Okay, that's <laughs> yeah. Okay, we're done. <laughs> we did it today. So, hmm? <laughs> you keep going. Just don't look back. All right. So let's let's look at thirty three twelve. This should be for those of you who've been learning with me for a while. This should be a familiar text to you. Because we look at it lots of different times during the year, in the lectionary cycle, but also at the holiday time. So let's look at this text. 33.12. Bert? Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, lead this people forward, but you have not made known to me to whom you will send with me. Further, you have said, I have singled you out by name, and you have indeed gained my favor. Now, if I have truly gained your favor, pray let me know your ways that I may know you and continue in your favor. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, I will go in the, I will go in the lead and lighten your burden. 
And he said to him, Moses saying to God, unless you go in the lead, do not make us leave this place. For how shall it be known that your people have gained your favor unless you go with us? so that we may be distinguished, your people and I, from every people on the face of the earth. Okay. What has just happened? We're in Parshat Kitisa. That should be a clue. What just happened? The golden calf just happened. Moshe goes up to get the Ten Commandments, comes down. The people are already breaking the deal by representing God with a bull. A calf, and so uh, Moshe tears up the agreement. Right, he breaks the tablet because he's tearing up the agreement because the people have already abrogated the deal. He goes back up. God calls. There's a plague. It's horrible. Lots of people die. It's terrible. God calls Moshe back up and says, "You bring the tablets this time." So Moshe brings another set of tablets, and we get the renewal of the covenant. We get another shot. God forgives uh, because Moshe implores God forgives and uh, we get the second set of tablets that is the covenant that is still in place not the first covenant right that got torn up the agreement that's still in place is that second agreement that Moshe comes back down with is it different from the first presumably what's different is God is willing this time to make a deal with a people that God knows is capable of abrogating it right away. So God's willing to take that risk. Um, and the people know that, well, I don't know what the people know, but it's any different than what they knew uh, before. I guess that God means business. I don't, I don't know. But um, but certainly God has learned something. And in that sense, for me, that that I've given a sermon on this, that, um, that, that in that sense, for me, that's what makes this covenant able to last is that God makes that deal with a fallible people and that's the only way the agreement stays in place for so long like anyone who is with someone it's not until you have your first fight it's not until they break your heart for the first time that you're going to get to the relationship the way it's really going to last Sarah's smiling and nodding. Yeah, Sarah? And generally, it isn't until they show you, or you show them, right? It's not until you show each other your capability of hurting one another and disappointing one another. It's not until that break happens and there's a repair and a rapprochement afterwards, that rapprochement, that's what's going to be in place for the rest of your relationship, not the, the naive. have changed a little bit. I mean, the conditions of the rapprochement will realize the difference in the two of you between God and man. So I'm guessing, to Linda's question, that there was a difference from the first to the second. Not just that he was willing to renegotiate, but that he understood the limitations and consequently right, so, right. made it, I don't know, less difficult or... Or just... What? Y- y- it, for me, it's it's that it's stronger it because be. God knows now that God is making this deal with a people that could devastate God again yeah. by once again betraying the exclusivity of that contract. And so that it's a stronger deal that's in place 
But maybe I think, wider, a little wider and softer than the first one was. Who knows? I, I would not use the word soft, but I but whatever. However you want to think about it, it's a different yeah, it's a different it's a different deal. understanding. And and it's that understanding only once they've only once God has been betrayed is there a covenant in place that's gonna stay in place for three thousand years. God has never offered to marry them before. God has never offered an exclusive deal before this kind of intimacy before. So why do I, why am I bringing that up? Because what's happening now is Moshe's having a very intimate conversation with God. He's having a very intimate experience right now. And we're going to see this is about as intimate as it gets um, with human beings and God. And it's Moshe, of course, our symbol of right. The, the person closest who got the closest. So, the, the second deal is in place, and now God said, okay, it's time to get up and, and go. It's time to move. It's time to, to break camp and to move forward. So Moshe says to God, okay, yo, look, really, look, literally, look, you told me, you say lead this people forward, but you've not made known to me whom you will send with me. There seems to have been a promise that that these the people will be accompanied and Moshe's asking you've not made it known to me who's going to go with us further you've said Moshe's talking to God furthermore you've said I've singled you out by name and you have indeed gained my favor Moshe's quoting God to God it's very Jewish ve'atza <laughs> now if I've truly gained your favor Please let me know your ways that I may know you and continue in your favor. Moshe's asking for a different kind of understanding of the divine and is asking for God to reveal something about God's self that will help Moshe understand how to stay in God's good graces, how to stay in God's favor. But he doesn't wait for anything to happen there. He keeps talking. Moshe, consider too that this nation is your people. All right, now Moshe stops talking. And God answers. God said, I will go in the lead and will lighten your burden. Right? Don't worry about sending somebody. I'm going. Right? This is a pretty intimate, pretty wonderful thing. God is not going to send an angel. God is not, right? I'm going in the lead. I'm going to lead you all. Okay. Yay. Right? Not so much if you're a Jew. Right? So hang on. So Moshe does Moshe say, yay, thank you so much. Now I feel so much better. No, Moshe's a Jew. Moshe says, (laughs) unless you do go in the lead, do not make us leave this place. For how shall it be known that your people have gained your favor unless you go with us? so that we may just be distinguished, your people and I, from every other people on the face of the earth. God just said, I'm going in the lead. And Moshe says, see that you do. Walk the walk. See that you do. Otherwise, there is no way for people to know that we're special. We're going to get trounced walking around, right, in these territories that don't belong to us. Walking around on other people's turf we're gonna get eaten alive you make sure you 
are in the lead or essentially we're not going. We're not going. All right, Bert, 17. And the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have asked, for you have truly gained my favor, and I have singled you out by name. He said, that's Moses, Oh, let me behold your presence. And he answered, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you the name Lord, and the grace that I grant and the compassion that I show. But he said, You cannot see my face. For man may not see me and live. And the Lord said, See, there's a place near me. Station yourself on the rock, and as my presence passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and shield you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you will see my back. But my face must not be seen. Okay. How much more anthropomorphic can you get? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yep. So as Bert read, he kept clarifying, this is God talking, this is Moses talking. If you listen in the Hebrew, there's no indication of who's talking. And he said, and he said, and he said, and he, this is always how it is, remember? This is always how it is when we're dealing with a theophany. When we're dealing with God's appearance, we are always dealing with a tangled uh, linguistic style on purpose. Because it is not clear in an encounter with the divine exactly what's happening when, right? And sequentially, right, the whole revelation section, him going up, him coming down, he's called up, but he's already up. How can he be down if he's up, right? The whole thing is a mess. It's supposed to be. The author isn't stupid, right? The editors knew how to edit a text. It's on purpose that it's left really tangled. To It's a linguistic device to emphasize the fact that this is ineffable. This is stuff beyond words. So they tangle the words to, to make that clear. Okay? So all the, he said, he said, he said, it's supposed to be a train wreck of who's talking. That's exactly how it's supposed to feel. Because it's saying we can't analytically, logically, rationally understand the kind of experience that we're talking about on the paper here. The result is intimacy. So say more about that, Sarah. The result of what is intimacy? Of the confusion. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't know who's talking, it could be either one, and that's how it is with intimacy. Beautiful. I have the senses equals close to being equal. The relate right relationship, and that's a that's a beautiful way to talk about it. Is when we're dealing with real intimacy. It's not exactly clear where you stop and I start, right? Whether it's physical intimacy that we're talking about, sexual intimacy, if we're talking about when you make music together, when you perform together, if you're creating art together. Like, when you're truly intimate, it's not clear who, who's talking, who's, think, who, who's feeling, who's touching, who's, right? And, and that is a beautiful way to express that, that it's not that the editors don't know what they're doing. What the editors are doing is creating that sense of it's all it is together. It's intimate and and in that sense confusing about who who starts what. Think about Jacob wrestling the angel, right? What, who stops? Who starts? Who's talking? Who's not? Who's wrestling? Who's got whom? Who? Right? And it, it's that same sense of it being a very intimate encounter. 
Is it possible that it's also because it's not in words? So it's not in words, this communication. So you're hearing it, but are you hearing it? <laughs> right. Right. And what? Because what does it mean? Like to Bert's point, what does it mean to say God speaks? Like really, from Maimonides, who's a Neoplatonist, there can't be a change in God. So how could God possibly not be speaking and then be speaking? Right. And so, so for a long time, this has been a question: What does it mean God speaks? Right. And so, for folks like Rambam, for Maimonides, it's that God is always. This is this is what God always does eternally. It's whether or not we show up to receive. Right, the message, but the message is always going out, and in that sense, it's not talking. And now I listen, and you talk, and then you talk. Right, that it that it really is more of a how do we know this? How do we apprehend anything about the divine? It really isn't words. Words are the closest thing we have when we're talking about it. Okay, even saying that, talking about it, right? Um, but we don't. But words are not anywhere near. Sufficient, and that's why we're going to see if we ever get there to the to, to the text. Um, it it's tangled, even trying to uh, translate what is said here, because again, it's a purposeful. When you're really talking about apprehending the divine, is it really the words and the thought and the idea? Probably not. Right, we're not talking about it goes in my brain and I think about it and now I understand. It's it's much more of an apprehending in a in a different way. But but words are all we have to tell the story. Right. Someone had a hand up over here? What if this is Moses speaking to himself? Of course. Of course. And so there's no separation. Of course. Sure. And there's no two. Sure. Of course. Yes. I don't know which one is associated with Moses. Right. System. Yeah. So you'll let us know. You'll let us know next week. All right. Laura. Sticking your, sticking your hand behind the veil, right? Yeah. There, that the veil from this reality to yeah. the other is, is thin sometimes and in some places. And this is certainly one of those moments where, right, we're talking about... Normal. Exactly. Because there is no normal when we're at the place of beginning of life, end of life, <laughs> transformative life experiences that change us profoundly. There... There isn't a normal, right? There's a there's only not normal. Or like the, uh, the graphing way of the talking about it's sort of like time bending in a way. It's just mm-hmm. not the way we perceive things in our regular Correct. Yes, Anna. Uh, the, the conversation reminds me of, of something that really talks about the collective unconscious mm-hmm. and that place where dreams come or waking dreams or if we're able to listen to it and we all have 
all have that as human beings, which the part that I don't get is that the Jews are separated from that. Somehow the Jews get separated, our people, when it's the collective. It's collective. So, because we have to be fair to the time and place this is written. It's not fair to ask them to have an awareness of the collective unconscious. That is not their awareness. That is not their language. That is not their idiom. That is not their idea. That is Jung's idea. That is, you know, that is another culture's idea. We can love that, but it's not any writer than right, another culture's experience. of. And for them, they're living in a world where every people has its God. And every people has its protector God. And you better be the favorite to that God or you are in serious trouble and you've done something seriously wrong. They don't say we're better than Egypt. They're saying Egypt doesn't have our God. We're in an exclusive relationship with yud Vavhe. No one else needs to deal with yud Vavhe. Right, right. But, but Israel was saying nobody else needs to worry about yud Vavhe because yud Vavhe isn't their God. It's our God. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Adonai is our God. That's all we care about. There wasn't a universal, this is not a universalist text, right? This is a very specific people at a very specific moment having their very specific relationship with their God. What we want to say about we've moved past that, 100%, right? Like 100%, which is why Reconstructionism has rejected the language of chosenness to make that very clear that we don't believe we are chosen. Because now, yud heh is the universal God yeah. for Christians and Muslims, and, right? So now we had a problem. <laughs> now that everybody else has a relationship with yud heh for us to say we have an exclusive relationship mm-hmm. with yud heh becomes a problem. It wasn't a problem when nobody else had yud heh mm-hmm. as their God. Who cares? Like, if our God is Bob, right, and their God is Sue, then... They, what do they care that we're saying Bob is our God Bob mm-hmm. is our God yay we love Bob Bob loves us what do they care they're dealing with Sue <laughs> do you see what I'm saying so it just it's just a very different orientation but but certainly when we talk about how this text speaks to us what it even hinted of then yes of course it's it's us talking to our a different part of ourselves it's a you know and there and there that sense there is no two there is no separation it's about the collective unconscious how do we as as humanity understand Right, um, imperatives from the divine. If we want to talk about it like that, right? And so that's yes, yes, and yes. And that that's all how we've. That's why this text continues, I believe, to speak to us and to be interesting. Is because you don't have to stop at their understanding of it for us to say, oh, so that speaks to me of the collective unconscious. Terrific, right? And we explore that, but we always have to just keep in our mind they were in a very different place, and we we can revalue it for ourselves, but we also have to be fair. Um, to them in their context, Barbara. So, I, this is not really knuckleheaded, but I, I know that this was. So, this is before the shift from polytheism to monotheism, and everybody picked Bob. But how did that happen? <laughs> how did everybody pick Bob, and yet the Israelites were like, <laughs> like, how did that happen? Right. So, it, well, part of it is about Christianity. Oh. As Christianity develops, they have a relationship to that God, to Yudhe that that's where a lot of it starts, but Islam also understood that this that Abraham was the ancestor of Muhammad, and so Abraham's God Yehovah is the Prophet's God. So now both both Christianity and Islam want Bob. <laughs> now people care how you talk about Bob, right? And a lot of the world was Christian and Muslim 
at, at one point, right? And so, or at least the people we were dealing with were very, very invested in Bob and their relationship with Bob. And now, now our relationship became, right now how we talked about it became very problematic for other people, right? Particularly Christians, not so much Muslims. Because it was, they were fine having everybody love Bob, and Bob loves everybody. But, but Christianity, ooh, that was, because we we had the first covenant, you know, we had we had the original agreement, and so that that has always been a problem with Christianity, the supersessionist need, the need for Christianity to supplant Israel, the people Israel, as they, because the church is the new Israel. And that became a serious source of anti-Semitism and a very serious source of, of continued conflict into today, Still. right? Still today, it's, uh, you know, our... Oh, never mind, I'm not going to go there. Okay. Um, I'm so glad we don't have to say Shema Yisroel Bob. I know, right? <laughs> uh, <clears throat> to me, this passage is uh, recalls to me, I think it was Mordecai Kaplan who said... We need the challenge is to take Torah seriously without taking it literally. Correct. Because it's real easy to come and to say, "Oh, come on, you know that this is crazy. God didn't talk to Moses. God doesn't, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera." And then to just throw this out. Right. And so I think what you're what you're doing with this to reinforce your point is to say we don't have to throw out the words. We cannot take it literally. We can then go to other deeper meanings in it which I would submit we can do with prayers, with traditional prayer as well, to try and make sense of it. We just went through the high holidays where a lot of the liturgy, if we were to regard it totally literally, might not make sense to us, might not be something we want to speak. It would be something we would rip out of the prayer book right? and but, throw in the trash can. But he, here for me, what, what you're guiding us through, which I think is so important, is looking at the traditional language from another angle and finding ways to really find the depth of it. Because it obviously meant something really, really important to human beings at some other point. Absolutely. And the Thank modern, you for the modern interpretation. Why was this chosen for Ah, so I'm gonna I'm gonna let's ponder that while we finish this. Um, we're, we're just gonna finish this piece that we just read, that's all. We're not gonna do any more text. Um, so God says to Moshe, Alright, so Moshe has just said, Go with us or else don't have us go anywhere, and because how else will people know that we're that we have your favor? Meaning they'll leave us alone. And God said to Moshe, "I will also do this thing that you have asked, for you have truly gained my favor, and I have singled you out by name." He said, "Oh, let me behold your presence." What's the word in Hebrew? End of verse eighteen. <laughs> Kivodecha. What is Moshe asking to see? Hareini, show me. Hareini na, show me, please. Kvodecha. Weight, your weight, your glory, your, your significance. significance. Right? Kaved, heavy. Show me your matter. Show me you matter. Show me your glory. Show me why you matter. Show me why you matter. Show me that you matter. Show me how you show up when you matter. When you are concentrated, when you are heavy, show me what that looks like. What does that mean? So what is godliness about? So what is godliness? Well, actually, Moshe's asking what Moshe's asking. 
God answers what God answers. So, because and, and those are some people want to see those as two very different, right? Tracks. Moshe saying, "Show me you." God, what what does God do in response? God says, "I will make all my goodness kol tuvi, all my goodness pass before you." Vikarati v'shem Adonai lifanecha, and I will call out the name Yud Hey Vav Hey before you. And here's where it gets really tangled. Vechanoti et asher achon. I will grant the grace that I will gracify. Vechamti et asher erachem. And I will mercify that which I will mercify. It's, it's just as tangled in the Hebrew as I just made it in the English. It's... It, it does not exactly make sense, like but like God, it doesn't make a lot of sense, the Hebrew, but I think it's back to that point of mushing up something about grace and something about mercy and compassion. And the, the scholars point to the fact that it is God saying, I will be merciful where I will be merciful and I will grant grace where I will grant grace meaning unlike other cultures surrounding Israel there's no magic you can do that will assure you that I will be merciful right there's no there's no spell you can cast there's no stuff you can mix together in a cauldron and call it good right I God will decide where I rachem and where I chen Going back to what Moses was asking for, is he asking, is he continuing to sort of be kind of this uh, practical thinking leader? Like, okay, so we're going to go march off and God's leading the way, and what if some guy comes up to him and says, are you really sure that that's God up there leading us, that we're not going off in some weird direction? And I need to know what you look like so I can go and check and say, yeah, is that still the guy who's leading us? And, I mean, is that Very possibly. Moshe's maybe looking for a practical answer. You know, that show me what's going on. Show me. How do I know? How will I trust? Very possibly. God is giving a very different answer to show me. Moshe says, show me. God says, I will cause my goodness to pass before you, and I will call out the name yud heh vav before you. Moshe's talking about seeing. God answers in, um, in, in hearing. And, in, and I will call out the name, and goes on. But you cannot see my face, for man may not see me vachai and live. We've had this conversation before. Right? So we will have to unpack that. 21. And God said, See, there is a place near me. Station yourself on the rock. And as my presence passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and shield you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away. And you will see, and I'm not going to trans. I'm not going to read the English because I don't like it. Um, you will see my afterward, but my face must not be seen. So the effect, the effect of God, Linda. So if put a different kind of spin on it, I guess God is passing by Moses and is leading him. God's 
Okay. Okay. So that there's some effect on Moshe that changes Moshe in this experience of this divine goodness somehow. A different kind of leader in that way. People have godliness glowing about him or something. Okay. Laura? I think my language is going to be as mushy as this. Okay, good. I can't quite form it, but it, you know, it makes me think have a lot of, have a lot of conversations at home. My kids back in God, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in God, and this rule of the universe stuff, it's just wrong, I don't believe it. And of course, and I just think, like, what if this were the kind of language that was always used to talk about God from preschool on up, rather than the character God or, or Well, you <clears throat> you could know. Stay with me. If we're just going to stay with the text, <laughs> I love this text because it says you could know, you could see my face, but you can't see me vachai and live. So while you're on this side of stuff, you you can't know, and when you do, you are no longer on this side of stuff. By definition, right? Because I, I do not believe, and this could just be, I know I'm a modern person and I try to take the text in its context, but I don't believe this just means live. I don't think it just means live. Like simply, if you see me, you die. I, I don't believe that's all that it means. It's that if you understand, at a, if you know, right, you see my face, if you know it's by definition not high anymore. You're not a human being anymore. Like it, you would transform. You, you would you would transform. You would you would ascend, right? In the language of Stargate SG One, right? <laughs> you would ascend. You would. You can't be a human being living a human life and and see and comprehend and get it. That it would it would obliterate your ability to continue to high. You couldn't do the dishes the next day. I just love that he's writing that. Yes. Right. And and to your always been then bigger than we can comprehend. Yes. While we're while we're this while we're high, yes, we we can't know. Not not when we're this. And the other thing I love about this, where where you're going is Jewish tradition said, doesn't have Moses see the face of God and ascend, right? Because that's a possibility. And Moshe saw the face of God because he earned God's favor and Moshe ascended and that's what all of us are reaching for. Our text says, God says to Moshe, I'm going to protect you from me. I love you. You have gained my favor. So I'm going to get as close to you as I can and have you still high because it's important Moshe that you high not that you see 
my right if god really wanted to be intimate with moshe god would let moshe see god's face but then moshe wouldn't be high anymore and god, and what i love about our tradition is that god what's more important than moshe understanding the essence of the divine what's more important is for moshe to live so god protects moshe from god from too much god because too much god means moshe won't be able to go lead the people he'll be godding all the time and God doesn't want Moshe Godding all the time he wants Moshe leading go do what only you Moshe can do you have to when it's time God's going to call Moshe and there's going to be a kiss and Moshe dies by the kiss of God right so a very intimate death for Moshe the, the kiss of God and but not now And that is not the goal, it's not the point, even for our greatest leader, even for the man that we lift up as the closest ever to God, the goal was not to grok God to the point where he couldn't do Moshe anymore. But but that's also, you know, like from our liturgy, this is sort of a a great point. There's this line that we have in the liturgy that God used just a few days ago, and it's like, you know, what are we that you pay any attention to us at all? You know, it's like it's like it's almost incomprehensible. It's almost incomprehensible that you know it's that you know we we are we are um, and we're not so small. If if we really were that small, there would be no reason at all for God to pay attention, right? And yet we're you know so it gets very complicated. I mean, there's there's a there's a reason why God is protecting Moses. He kind of likes us the way we are. I mean, yeah, we screw up, but the, there's something there's something in us that speaks to God. Yes, mm-hmm. the way we are. The way we are. The way we are, and that's a beautiful, beautiful teaching yes. for me. And um, and to your point about kids, I 100% agree. Um, but there's two problems. One is we don't have great language for God that be, that's beyond language. This has always been a problem. So that's it. And I hear you saying that there's... It's not to give them something that is, it must be rejected as But the other problem is the, is the child's brain, right? So here, God can only do certain things while, because Moshe's got a human brain and a human perception system. So this is what God can do with a human to get close, but it's not anywhere close to what God let's just say is for the moment, right? So so it's the brain interpreting it. So yes, I agree, we need to look at God language. I'm serious about never using God, he, for a reason. I don't. I never want a little girl in this room or a little boy to have to re, like rethink because we say God, he, right? So um, but the so we, we should be looking at God language, how we talk about God, how we do that. I don't think we do talk about God, so I think it's a worse problem even than you've identified. We don't talk about God. And so that's a challenge um, that we should be looking at. And, and we have the very real challenge of brains that are very literal. Children do not understand or get God as process, God as verb, God as... It's a very difficult thing to have a, a little mind. They're very concrete. And and so they, they will translate what you say into very concrete um, ways of, of relating. And so that that's the second challenge, you know, is but but what we don't do is talk to them once they're past that mm-hmm. age. We don't talk to them in ways that now they could access. We don't give them that 
language. We, a, we a don't. wonderful book called uh, by uh, Rabbi Harold Kushner called When Children Ask About God that deals with this whole issue. And he said basically what, what you just said, and so many of us want our children to be adults and we try and give them adult ideas as a child and they just have no idea what we're talking about. Right. Like we're answering questions they right. they don't ask yeah. yet, you know, exactly, um, which is always <laughs> a, bad, a bad idea. I am, um, and you're all kind of learning my bias here, but I interpreted this um, a little differently in that, um, and to speak to you, I have an 11 year old so, um, that when, uh, uh, when God passes by, he shields you in, with a hand, which I, I envisioned it being, you know, what we do when we pray, when we meditate, as we close our eyes and we go inward. If you can't see and your eyes are closed, and we were talking about the hearing and not seeing, that when you close your eyes and you go inward, then that's where you can find those, you can find your own image of God. And um, and it's not something that you see. So that's how I interpreted that, and that's how I raised my son, is having closed his eyes to feel that Godly presence inside of him. So he always had access to it. But but notice there's nothing about picture, and there's no image. Motion doesn't experience an image, right? So I think it's a really important point that it's not go inside and you'll find your image of God. The text is very clear. Close your eyes, get quiet, go inside, and find what? Find what? Which is what? According to this, grace, mercy. Tove, good, that is God, says God. You want to use that metaphor that Moshe's getting quiet, going within, God's covering him up so that he can go, fine, lovely. What, how will you know it's God when you find it? It is Tove. It is goodness. It is Chain, grace, and Rachamim, compassion and mercy. That is God's kavod that Moshe has asked to see. And God says, you can't see. You will know it by tov. And you'll know it by chen and by rachamim. That is how you know my glory. And if that isn't a message for the high holidays, if that isn't something that we need to be listening to right after Yom Kippur, I don't know what is. You all have cleaned it up. Good. You've gotten, you've atoned. You've gotten rid of your sin. You've repaired everything. Great. Now, what is it all for? If it's to come close, if it's to be in a sukkah and be close to the divine like we were in the desert, God says, longs for that time, say the rabbis. God misses us because we used to be intimate when we were newlyweds in the desert. We relied only on God. We couldn't wait for the other one to get home from work so we could be together in the apartment and just look at each other all day, all day, and lock eyes. And uh, So God misses that because we go away. We do this whole Yom Kippur thing, and then it's like, okay, we're done with that. On to, on to the next stuff. And, and God is longing for that intimacy again. And when we were in the desert and when Moshe said, I want to know you intimately. And so we come to this text. You want to know me? What was Yom Kippur about? Yes, it's about cleaning stuff up. Yes, it's so you have a good harvest. Yes, 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 yes. And 
It's really hopefully about coming closer, being intimate with the divine. And for that, you gotta seek it. And when you do, and you get quiet, and you close your eyes, and you open, and you really are begging God, show me your kavod, then if we're truly open, and truly trusting, and truly present, then we experience tov, and chen, and rachamim. And that, if we can get here, Yom Kippur has done its job. If we can make it to this place, if we can be embodiers of chen, of grace, of rachamim, of compassion, then Yom Kippur worked. Because it's one thing to clean it up, it's another thing to live lives of goodness and to really believe and experience that we are, like God, filled with chen and with rachamim. Shabbat shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.